Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome back, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak. We appreciate everybody taking some time to join us for this next edition of Midrats. And if you are with us live, I'd like to invite you, if you haven't already, to scroll down to the bottom of the show page. That's where you'll find a link to the chat room. Paul is there, as he is usually. He'll be glad to greet you on board. And that's the perfect place where, if in the course of the show you have some observations you want to share, or if there's a question you would like for us to ask our guest, we'll monitor it during the course of the show, and we'd be glad to grab your ideas and just roll it into the conversation. And for today's show... Uh, again, kind of like our guest last week, this is somebody for most listeners of Midrats. You need no introduction, but uh, we're bringing him back. I can't believe it's only his uh, third time on, but his returning guest who is known to most people in the national security and maritime ecosystem as uh, defense reporter extraordinaire David Larder, though that was his previous chapter. He's got a new chapter in his life. But all of us who have uh, served and have a passion for our Navy, uh, he has not left the topic behind. And we've always valued David's uh, perspective, not just as a recovering OS2, but also the fact that in his years on the naval beat in the national security arena, he's learned a lot. He's gotten a lot of perspective. He sees a lot of the rhythms and the patterns that you can only get from diving into the topic day after day with the passion that, that David has always shown for everything that he has done. And just want to say, uh, you know, David is on board today just as himself. Standard disclaimer, his opinions, though they should be, uh, they may not necessarily be that of his employers or any organizations he might be part of. David Larder, welcome back for Chapter 3 of Midrash. Well, thank you so much for the uh, kind introduction, and yeah, I'm really excited to be back and uh, talking with the, uh, the maritime community again here on uh, on your on your show, which is always uh, such a service to sort of advancing the discussion. So, thank you. Always our pleasure, because I, I know it's going to be an easy show, and we were discussing ahead of time. Well, you know, what are we going to talk about? Um, even though we all try to talk slowly as best as we can, uh, there, there's so much to talk about, and you're always uh, a great conversationalist. And you know, most leaders, leaders, most listeners on Midraps, they um, they know you, they they know your work, um, but they they may not have known that you've you've made a transition. You've uh, in sure. your childhood you left Scotland. And uh, as you've grown into a into a strapping middle-aged man, almost remember that yeah. uh, you've moved from the east coast to the west coast. So I guess uh, the big thing that comes to mind here is now that you're out there on the west coast, are you having any trouble finding some good Philadelphia Eagles fans, or are you the only person running around yelling "Go Birds"? There is quite a big uh, contingent of Philadelphia Eagles fans on the West Coast. I'm surprised, surprised and delighted that it's, there's a big Philadelphia presence. In fact, if you go out towards Venice Beach from where I, I live in, um, I live uh, in sort of the greater Marina del Rey area. And if you go up from where I am up to uh, Venice Beach, there's, a, there's a, a store that says it's a hoagie shop. And I was like, wait a second, <laughs> hoagies. Because uh, that's what we call them up there in, uh, in, in Philly, and I and I it was my first clue when we were just driving around that we were not alone. So no, actually it's a pretty solid presence, and I think Philly fans typically uh, make a good showing at the Dodgers and even down in San Diego. Um, and you usually find uh, Philly's contingent at the 
at the Padres game. So, yeah, no, I've been delighted that I, I, I am not alone and not as far from uh, my tribe as, uh, as you would have thought out here in L.A. Well, we, uh, we, we advertised we were going to talk about uh, some issues that have arisen in the Navy, and I guess sure. since I get, I get to ask the question that, that some of the questions are on my mind. Um, the last couple of weeks, maybe a month or so, the Navy has had a, some really bad publicity about the way it treats its sailors, especially E4 and below, mm-hmm. on, on their housing. And and one one issue rose with the with the on the carrier uh, George Washington and the other one rose with, at Key West, and and um, I don't know you were you were in a precom crew I think on your on the uh, amphib you were on if I'm not mistaken did did they as much as they could did they make you live on the ship at, at a certain pay grade and and how, how how was that do you think compared to what the George Washington sailors were going through. Well, sure. So I'll I'll back up just a little bit. I'd um, I've been on amphibs before for my reporting, but my um, my four years was spent uh, on board USS Normandy on a guided missile cruiser. And but I do have extensive experience with shipyards, and so I'll sort of walk you through my uh, career uh, and and how it interacted with uh, you know life on board the ship. So when I first checked on board, I um. Uh, I, you know, we, you go through boot camp, it's open day barracks, and you just kind of expect that. And then when you get to A school, I went to A school in Damneck, and that was, um, and that was essentially a hotel, right? You, you lived essentially in a hotel, like most, you know, enlisted barracks. You, you have one roommate, um, and it's essentially a hotel room, uh, same as you'd recognize anywhere in the country. And then, so when I checked on board USS Normandy in December of, um, gosh, 2002, I uh, was led uh, down into operations birthing and I looked in the, and I was sort of said, this is your rack and it's top rack in the back corner of the birthing. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, I thought, I mean, I'd seen that. So I went on board the battleship New Jersey when it was decommissioned and sent to Camden, New Jersey. That was one of the things I did. Um, maybe I think like maybe 2000, I think. And I was one of the first people to check it out because I was, always very into battleships and still am. Um, most of my Twitter followers will know, but the, um, and I, I seen that their, you know, that their, uh, accommodations were less than, you know, luxurious. Um, but I thought, you know, well, this is 2009 or this year 2002. It's gotta be upgraded. It's gotta be updated. I'm sure these are much nicer. No, it wasn't that much nicer. Um, I mean, we didn't have hammocks, uh, we had coffin racks, but we had some pretty good storage. Um, but that's where I lived for the first three years of my career. Um, I, I didn't get off the ship really until a buddy of mine, well, a good friend of mine, um, was, uh, sent IA to Iraq and he asked me to babysit his house or house sit for him. Um, so I, I lived in a condo in Chesapeake while he was IA'd, um, in, uh, in Baghdad, which was really nice of him. Um, and then we, uh, and then I, we deployed right from there. Um, and then I moved off the ship when I got back. So I spent three years, um, in total living on board the ship. And I, I can, I can speak to that experience as being really depressing for the most part. I mean, it has nothing to do with my state leave decision, but it's, it's tough. I mean, I didn't really have the money. I mean, some, some, some junior sailors have the money to, or make, I guess, find the money to maybe scrape together three or four other sailors, get an apartment, um, and, and move off the ship. But I never did that. Um, but if you go into the shipyards, um, it becomes even worse uh, because you have, um, you know, the toilets are secured. Maybe you have to walk to the other side of the ship. Maybe combat systems birthing all the way forward is the only working shower, right? Um, or you're on the birthing barge, and those are really horrendous um, in, in terms of conditions. They're they're very old. They're beat up. They're not they're not fun to live in and the, and the racks are old and the mattresses are generally not great. I mean, this is dated information, but I, I don't imagine it's gotten too much better in the years. I don't think they've replaced any of the version part, birthing parties. Um, so all that to say, I think that the um, experience, anything they could do to improve the experience, they could potentially um, they could potentially spend some money and just get new birthing barges or, um, make the ones they have, although I don't know if you can make the ones they have. They're, they're, I think a lot of them 
when I was in Japan, I mean, those things are from World War II um, that they've refitted a number of times. But you need, it's not like they're making strenuous operational deployments or anything, but these things are old. Um, but yeah, no, the, the accommodations for junior sailors, they really shouldn't be living on ships. It's not, it's not great for retention. It's not great for morale. Um, genuinely think that they should have barracks rooms the way Marines do. Um, sort of like that A school experience where it's more like a hotel that that should be a baseline expectation. If you're in port, you shouldn't have to sleep on the ship. You know, it's interesting. There, there are things like that that are, are low hanging fruit. And I know you wrote about this topic uh, a lot when when you were a journalist. And as a, as a cruiser man, I know you can appreciate this as well. But uh, when I was reading about the Key West situation and also the situation with the uh, the aircraft carrier in the dry docks, I was thinking um, about the the one time as a as a JO I did a walkthrough of a birthing barge, and uh, I can't even imagine because a lot of those are still in commission. What they must be like, yeah. you know, fifteen, twenty years later, and you know, our, our friend Chris Cavus put something out last week that just really, uh, especially after I forget what the master chief's name was, his very callous remarks to the people on the carrier, basically telling them to yeah. suck up, um, is the the cruiser Vicksburg and that whole commission decommission routine with the mm-hmm. with the cruisers. Um, what a, what a nightmare that is! Uh, somebody's going to write that story, and people won't believe it in, in, at some point down the road. But even though this ship is is going to go away, it's been in the shipyard since 2019. It's still only 85 percent complete. It's probably never going to make another deployment. Um, the Navy spent 8.1 million dollars more on it. Um, you know, how many? If you could use a shipyard that's not fully tapped out and to do this, you know, what type of birthing barges could you build to third century of twenty first uh, third decade of twenty first century standards for eight point one million dollars? People talk about retention, people talk about recruiting. Um, even if you just want to talk about doing the right thing for your sailors, this would seem to be some really low hanging fruit. But it doesn't seem to be a sexy conversation very much, especially when yeah. It's, I mean, obviously you're going to have factor to yeah. suicide. Yeah, I mean, obviously you're always going to have to have a duty section on board, right? Um, yeah. But, you know, if, if so, I'll caveat that you know sailors should sleep on ships if you're if you're in port. Um, yes, certainly when you're on on duty, you should and, and you will, you must. Uh, duty requires it, but um, but yeah, I mean, if the to me, so a few things that kind of contributed to um, my stay-leave decision. I mean, I think I made the decision pretty early on, which was good because I didn't um, – I didn't uh, – I, I, I realized very quickly. And I think something about the um, – when you grow up – I grew up and I didn't really have a strong appreciation, despite my parents' best efforts, for, um, you know, the value of, of topics that I didn't – care to learn anything about. And so I had sort of hit or miss grades. Um, and so college didn't necessarily appeal to me because of the idea of, you know, muddling through another four years of um, muddle, another four years of general education requirements that I had no interest in and things like that. I, I probably I didn't feel like I would perform well. So one of my decision points for the Navy was well, go in the Navy and maybe make that a career. And I realized very quickly, I was just very, um, stark difference uh, between just entry-level pay, right? So when you think about um, officers, even junior officers who do not get paid very much, right? Ensigns don't get paid very much. Um, but they do get the age. They can live off pay. <laughs> they can live off ship um, and do. And I think that was like the, 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 the stark difference between what I got for you know, just showing up as an untrained high school student, and it was a great opportunity. I would never change it. Vice, um, what you get for just four years of a college education, right? Just, just do four years of college education, you get to live off the ship. You get all these privileges, and you get, uh, you know, get people saluting you. It's just sort of very almost a physical reminder that, you know, I had just maybe done a little better and tried a little harder. I had a different experience, right? So that was part of my state leave decision very early on was like, I see that the officers have 
obviously their own sense of pressures and own, own sense of, of stressors, but they get to live off shit. So I, I would say that it was not an insubstantial, living on board U.S. Astronomy, which, you know, was fine. I didn't spend very well, I spent a lot of money, but I didn't have to spend any money really on food or, or anything like that. I ate on the ship mostly. Um, the contrast between getting to live off ship and staying on ship, it, it did not, it didn't not factor into my stay leave. In fact, it was probably part of it um, from a very early point. That yeah, if you go to college, you uh, you get more privileges. So that was the, that was part of it. Well, one of the one of the questions that I was going to ask about that stuff is is that the the role of of people who uh, were your uh, it's not. It's not enough to be a work supervisor when you're in the Navy. You've, you, you know, if what OSs do uh, get supervised, but it, you know, if you're a division officer, if you're the, if you're the, the guy in charge of the, the CIC or whatever, the combat systems kind of guy, and you've got chiefs and first class and all that, you know, at, at what level uh, did did the date while you were in the yards or wherever, what level did you see that leadership uh, making sure that your living conditions were given the, uh, what you had to work with were as good as they could be? Um, that's a great question. It didn't strike me as, you know, there's a leadership thing here and I'm not going to put out any individual officers because I'm sure that some of them listen to your show. Um, it's a leadership thing. I think we had a, we had an XO um, when I first got on board that didn't, make it a huge priority. And that was the first yards experience I had. Um, and then the second, um, and this is kind of like a, here's where leadership actually matters. Uh, and I tell this story pretty often because it really hit home. Um, the, we had an XO, uh, Murphy was his name. can't remember his, uh, his first name, but he, uh, he passed away a few years ago, very early, uh, of, uh, of cancer. So tragic situation, but I know we'll never forget the lesson in leadership. He taught me because he came in, um, to the birthing he came in with like, within a week of this guy showing up, he had played the XO role really well, right? He had scared the heck out of the entire wardroom. Um, <laughs> everyone was worried about him. He's like, Oh, he's such a hard ass. Like, you know, there's this, this guy, is, this guy is no joke. And so he came down for XO messing and birthing. And I was the, um, I was in charge of that uh, evolution for ops birthing uh, on that day. And I was like, it's my first interaction with XO Murphy. And I'm worried. I'm concerned. Like he's going to shred everything. Um, and he did, he came through and, um, made us, made me call like six or seven sailors down there to fix their racks and he wouldn't leave until they'd done it. It was pretty intimidating. But then I remember, um, he had himself a, a thermometer and the water in the water fountain in ops birthing from the time I got there. And this was maybe a year later uh, that I was on. I'd been on uh, Normandy and it had been warm the entire time. It's disgusting. Um, you know, the water on ships pipes and, and coming from the Norfolk pier, uh, it's never great. Um, but it's, it's warm. It's really gross, but you know, it's just been part of the experience of living on board. And he had a thermometer with him and he took the temperature and he realized very quickly that, uh, the water was something like 70 degrees. Um, coming out of it and it, there, there are actual specs involved with water fountain temperatures. It was supposed to be something like 42 or 44 or something like that. Um, and he's like, how long has it been like this? And I was like, sir, it's been like this since I got here about a year ago. And he was livid. Um, and the, um, came on, he, he called the EM down to, to yell at them, <laughs> not yell at them. He was nice, uh, in a very, stern way like it was polite and courteous but saying why is this like this and he's like oh we had a cat's wrap on it just hasn't been responded it's like this is a this is a living this is a conditions or living conditions issue um like and i'm not going to stand for it like this has got to be within spec and that it's been like this for more than a year is a disgrace and whatever we have to do with six water fountains so long story to say that leadership really does matter and if, if your sailors feel like they're living in crap conditions and they also feel like you don't care and they're being told, suck it up. I mean, when I talk about my stay leave decision, I mean, that's kind of the stuff I think about, right? It's like XO Murphy came in and he was hard and he was difficult and stubborn, but he also did it and made a point of doing it 
to show that it was so that we had cold water in our water fountain and that our birthing was clean and that we ate in a, in a, in a clean mess, uh, uh, messing facilities and things like that. It is, the leadership really does matter in these situations. So if you're asking, um, you know, if you're asking, you know, what, what could they do better? Or, I mean, if, if you believe that your leadership, no matter how hard or how the situation is, you believe your leadership has your best interests at heart and they want you to live in a good conditions and they actually care about those conditions, it makes a huge difference. And the fact that, you know, 20 years later, I'm still telling that story kind of uh, should tell you that that left an impression on me. Well, you know, David, I, I have to, it's a great story. And I remember you, you, you told me a shorter version of that once a few years ago. And I think that's, you know, when people are looking for leadership stories, you know, that's the leadership of the water fountain, because when you set low standards and you accept low standards on the minor things, it has a frag pattern. It has an echo. It has a secondary effect where, well, if we're going to let this, you know, go Kazret that nobody cares about, then it's okay for this other piece of equipment. We can get by without it. And it compounds and the low standards bring all standards down. And the little things aren't that little. Uh, I, uh, you may have seen a few times I will, to demonstrate a point, one of my favorite clips from a movie is from the uh, early Soviet Union silent movie. I think it was on 21, 22, 23, anyway, from the 1920s, the battleship Potemkin, you know, based upon that rebellion on the Black Sea, sea Russian battleship, that the, the final straw was inspecting the meat and just doing something and the officers making excuses that their their sailors could just accept low quality meat, maggot just pick the maggots out, it'll be fine. Um, you know, these things are eventually reach points that are important. And, you know, we started talking about birthing barges and singles and, you know, getting four or five guys together for a snake ranch out in town, which can be very scary. Um but in today's Navy, with a lot of the highly technical and, and even the not technical stuff, you need the experience. When people reach a certain age, when their frontal lobe finally closes up, and some time between the ages of 25 and 35, they consider themselves adults and professionals. They're building families. And uh, another thing that's broken out above the background noise, and I think a lot of people in the civilian world don't realize the fact that the Navy, depending upon the rate, uh, you know, if you want to be real extreme, look at, you know, a nuclear machinist mate, the amount of training and money that is invested in that. Is you may have uh, an E-5 there who's 25 years old, 26 years old. The Navy has invested millions and millions of dollars in. And let's say he uh, he fell in love with his uh, OS-3 and they've started a family. And even together, especially if they're in a place like San Diego, uh, there may not be base housing, uh, and if there is base housing, there's an 18-month waiting list on 24- to 36-month orders. And when you go out in town to look at rent, the Navy is investing a lot of money in people they would like to keep, but when they can't even go out in town and, and live in a manner that their civilian peers do, Again, that's, that's a low-hanging fruit item, but it's really become acute in the last few years as rent and housing prices has spiked. Uh, you know, for a lot of the listeners that may not appreciate, you know, what what is that standard of living for a uh, a married E5, 25 years old with one kid, especially if they have a non-working spouse? It's it's tough out there, and especially in California. Oh, without a doubt, right? So, I mean, right now, okay, so uh, I'll take you to Space Force. So Space Force has a um, has a presence in L.A., um, it, which is good because uh, I'm in the aerospace industry now, and so to, it's good to have them around um, and sort of engage because there are so many companies that are working on their projects all within the sort of uh, all in the coastal LA area, right? So SpaceX is here, um, and uh, well, literally everybody is here. Um, and so, if you're an E5 in Space Force and you wanted to live 
in uh, reasonably close to your base, your uh, housing option would be um, uh, probably, I'm going to say right now, going rates are well in excess of $4,800 for a, just a one-bedroom, right? Now, if you had a kid and you needed a two-bedroom, um, you're looking at more like 5500 uh, to 5600 And even if uh, BAS um, or BAH covers uh, a lot of that, you're still looking at um, – you're still looking at $6 plus gasoline, $6.60 per gallon gasoline. And the food isn't inexpensive either. I mean, basically, I would say I pay on average 40 to 50 cents more for every vegetable <laughs> um, than I would here in, or that I would have in DC. Um, it's the cost of living is staggering and, and there's a trickle uh, down effect, right? So what do you want to do when you're, uh, do you really just want to go as a 21-year-old or 22-year-old? Do you really just want to go to and from your house and pick up all your groceries and eat at home and, and just live that kind of super frugal life and then never go out for a couple of drinks? Because I tell you, if you want to do that, um, the rising cost of living is affecting everyone. It's affecting the, the uh, service community um, just as much as it's affecting you know, any sort of lower to, lower to middle income uh, and certainly junior sailors and junior uh, service members fall into that category. And so, and the, the actual meals are expensive because these restaurants have rent to pay and the rent is going up exponentially on commercial properties because commercial real estate is also really struggling. Um, so it, it, it's, it's astronomical at the moment out in California and San Diego, I think it's, it's probably, it's just as bad as it is up here in LA. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it would be a real struggle. And I think that's going to be, I think there's, there's two things going on there, right? Um, one, uh, when you're talking about a stay leave decision, if the economy's bad and you're just kind of just making it in the military, uh, if you're in a, a non-technical rate, yeah, it's not that it, you probably stay in, but if you're in a super technical rate, let me tell you, um, I will take you at the place I work and everywhere else will take you as well. If you have uh, experience working with the equipment that we're building um, from an operator perspective and you want to learn how to actually physically build it and then and maybe physically install it and physically service it um, uh, from like ground stations or wherever, we'll take it because that is invaluable experience. We are, as you know, space is huge. And, um, and it's getting bigger. And uh, so skilled labor, and then certainly skilled labor with a security clearance, Whew, I tell you what, we want you on board. <laughs> so I think that's something that the military is really going to have to look out for um, because the, the, the industry wants technical people with security clearances, and if they're not having their basic needs met and they're worried about, um, or if they just feel like they're not being taken care of, the industry will snap them up. Yeah, it's, uh, I have a daughter and <laughs> who lives in, L in the LA area and her husband is in, in the aerospace industry. And uh, I'm just flabbergasted by, by how hard it is to do anything there because of the prices of, of of uh, everything, I mean, it's just gone—it's gone nuts, as far as I can tell. So, I guess if you're—if oh, you're, if you're yeah, it's amazing. Let me let me shift the subject a little bit because I, I I know we promised people we'd talk about more than this stuff. Let's talk about rust. <laughs> no, let's let's, yeah. let's 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 talk about uh, uh, what's going on in Ukraine a little bit from from your perspective. And and uh, I've seen you've done a lot of uh, tweeting on that. We should probably mention you have a, mm -hmm. a Twitter a Twitter feed. But uh, let's talk yeah, a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Harder if anybody cares. <laughs> Uh, let's talk a little bit about Ukraine. I mean, what, uh, what, what's the perspective yeah. uh, out there and your perspective on what's happening and what we should be doing? Right. So as far as I can tell, and I get most of my information by reading other people these days, I, I, but the nice thing about, um, and this took a little while to transitioning out of um, journalism, is something happens. And part of my engaging these days with these issues is just because it's hardwired, right? It's hardwired into me to, um, to, uh, um, 
uh, to automatically think about what are the ramifications and how does this trickle down, right? Uh, and where, where does this, how does this going to affect the Navy? And so I think a couple of things on Ukraine. Um, from a, a maritime perspective, um, look, we've got the, the Russian Navy has about like 20 ships, right? Roughly 20 ships and submarines um, blockading uh, blockading uh, Ukrainian ports, specifically Odessa, and there's obviously a, a battle for control around Snake Island. And um, Ukraine could sink all those ships, and Russia could still uh, enforce a, a reasonably effective blockade. Um, and as it is right now, um, Ukraine has, or excuse me, Turkey has decided that there's no way that, that, that this is an active war. And so as the Montreux Convention kind of goes both ways, um, we can't um, send ships in and Russia can't send ships out. So that really puts them up a creek because at some point those ships are going to break and they're going to have trouble with sanctions and things like that that are they're going to have trouble keeping those ships maintained. So the ships themselves may um, start to break down over uh, this kind of op-tempo over a number of weeks and more months. But but still have the ability to prevent um, ships from going in and out of Odessa if they wanted to by air. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and then the second, uh, secondary consideration being obviously mines and they have submarines. So uh, from what I understand, that that's a kind of an uninsurable proposition for commercial shipping um, unless there was some kind of, international effort to make sure and to escort it to make sure that, that, that those ships could take it in and out of port safely. And we're talking primarily about grain right now, right? So this is the main concern that everyone has. And it strikes me as interesting, uh, sort of darkly amusing that I spend all my time worrying about maritime issues. And you have an issue like this where millions of people could starve because of maritime issues and all of a sudden it's all the, the most important thing in the world if we manage to solve this problem everyone will go back to forgetting that the maritime domain exists and uh, it will just be us again screaming into the void about how important this stuff is but I think as, as things stand for Russia right now I think the only option to secure grain exports are as far as I can see Again, this is just my opinion, but uh, is I think we're going to have to probably engage the UN. Uh, we're going to have to cut a deal with Turkey. Turkey is using its position now to, um, I mean, and why wouldn't you, to do a couple of things. It looks like they want to have some kind of public break with uh, the Kurdish militants that we that were our allies in the in the um, fight against ISIS. Um, and then second of all, I think they want to end the arms embargo uh, as a result of some of their actions during the Syria conflict, including incursion into Kurdish territory, um, a lot of NATO countries, including, I guess, Finland and to some extent Sweden. I know we had backed out over the S, uh, S-400 deal. Um, they want that they want that kind of behavior and that treatment to stop. So they're leveraging their position here in a way that, again, why wouldn't you? Um, so we're going to have to engage them. And then second of all, this is going to have to be sort of an international mission. And I think our, our role, because of the Montreal Convention, is going to have to be limited. I don't think we can actually physically get ships in there right now. I don't think Turkey will let us. So it's going to have to be Turkey leading the way, um, probably. And certainly the, the Romanian and Bulgarian forces can contribute. Um, and I'm sure that we could contribute some mine clearing, um, maybe EOD type stuff. And, and detection, and certainly, we could, I, I, I think, and again, I, this would get into diplomatic efforts, but we, we should be able to provide some air cover. That seems to me like the the smart option, because it puts Russia on the spot, right? It tells Russia that, are you really going to stop grain from leaving Ukraine? Are you really going to start? Are you really going to impose some kind of holodomor on the entire world? Um, not the entire world, but the developing world. Um, because the historical symmetry there for Russia, it looks bad. So I think we have to get organize the idea. First of all, engage Turkey, and then second of all, um, find out what they want, and then third of all, um, make Russia make a hard choice. What do you think, Sal? Well, I think I think it's one of the things, and I, I know as a journalist, you've got to be having a little bit of an itch at 
is, you know, this this is all you don't have to read too much and uh, to have too much of a historical understanding or to look at economics and charts to know that we are on the brinks of what is setting up to be a monstrous summer and fall um, in parts of the world that do live pay, not just paycheck to paycheck but hand to mouth where um, if you double the price of bread then only half the kids eat and you cannot predict what that will do to a civil society and I think part of the, the, the struggle is going to be is uh, and we're already seeing it where uh, I don't say it wouldn't say that no I will say these are not well-meaning characters are already misrepresenting the lessons that we're seeing from Ukraine that in many parts derives from uh, something not exclusive to the Russians, uh, but something you even saw with the Ukrainians is it's very seductive in times of peace to be sold a story of a short war, a quick war, an efficient yeah. war, and an exquisitely designed plan by our best people that can't lose. People have been selling that to political leaders for all of human history from the time that tribe a had a great plan to take the walnut tree valley from tribe c you know that's just just what's done and the long war comes and people are not prepared about it and i, th- I think you're spot on about turkey too uh, turkey is playing extreme hardball here uh, they know what they have um, and part of the struggle i think is to make sure and this is one thing I'd be interested to get your opinion on, is to make sure that the the well-meaning players and the smart players are starting the conversation because if the world's going to starve and revolutions are going to start because the assumptions people made about access to the high seas and the efficient transport of food globally that that enables, uh, we have to make sure that that story gets told as it actually is so policymakers can make decisions down the road that can mitigate that risk later. And one thing that has been bothering me the last week is uh, we've talked about sea blindness before, and you talked about screaming into the void. You have some very good people, a lot of your former colleagues um, in the journalism area that that's focused on maritime, they are trying. There are some academics, uh, some think tank people who are trying but there are a lot of institutions that corporations and individuals give money, time, and exposure to that you would think would be driving the conversation about free trade at sea, the importance of getting the right ships in the right legal context to move the right things to the right place and what it takes to do that about when our allies need mine warfare help, why we can't help, why other nations don't. Almost a failure of the institutions in the United States. I haven't looked too hard at some of the European institutions. Uh, what is your view from a distance of, and I, I'm not going to say any names, people know who they are. Uh, is my feeling that we are watching a failure of the institutions that a lot of navalist and maritime-focused national security people thought would rise to the occasion to bring the discussion in public. Are they failing us? Are they failing the, the moment? And uh, does that have repercussions down the road when this conflict does eventually end? You know, I will say that, so Great Britain um, uh, was kind of early-ish on this issue, right? I think they've been talking about it. And I know Boris Johnson's been talking about it. Um, but I think that that's on brand, right? There's just a culture that, despite the sort of sad state of the Royal Navy, um, is more attuned to uh, the sea lanes and to the importance of, um, because they're an island. And uh, I think one of the things that, uh, so the, the oceans, um, the oceans do two things for the United States, right? They, um, they give us kind of a false sense of insulation. Um, and because our country is so big, um, we think of ourselves, I, I guess we don't think of ourselves as an island, but in some in very important ways, we really are. Um, as we're surrounded by water 
on three sides, and then obviously Canada. Um, but but um, but we for some reason I don't know that. It, 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 this is the, sort of the the, the the great trap of being a navalist. You think that it's obvious, right? You, you see, the, you read a book like Six Frigates, right, and you realize that um, from our earliest days, this, the, the 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 nation has recognized that our interests um, are are uh, deeply bound up in maritime security and in the free shipment of trade over water. And that has only gotten more important. And you, and again, it's another thing you, you wish that people would pay attention to. It's only gotten more important as the shipping containers have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And we're becoming more and more reliant on things from outside of the United States. And you, you see something like the amazing backup at the port of Los Angeles. So I can, on any given day, um, last year, it's gotten a little better, starting to get bad again. I could go out, um, you know, down to the beach, and I could look out, and I would see a bunch of ships with um, with no containers on them. And that was as a result, uh, and they were just an anchor. Um, and it's as a result of the container shortage. Um, it's just the, the the physical containers that you put stuff in. Um, there was there was just not enough of them in circulation, um, and uh, so. You had a backup uh, of, of goods at LA that was causing sort of early on and still is causing perturbations in the market because things, goods weren't getting shelved um, fast enough. And things, um, you know, and, uh, and there was this container shortage, so we weren't allowed to turn exports around fast enough and keep things in circulation and keep these containers going and, and keeping the cycle running. And all these things are deeply tied into maritime security. And, and it doesn't take much imagination to think about, well, if I really wanted to screw up the American economy, what would I do? It wouldn't take much. We don't have a bunch of ports. Um, and it, it, all, all it would take would be threatening those, right? And then all of a sudden insurance rates go up. And people become a little more cautious about going to L.A. because if they think, you know, if they go down this particular sea lane, um, they might get sunk <laughs> in a deniable way. And so who sunk them? I don't know. It was China would blame us and the U.S. would blame China. And, um, but the point is that all these issues that we've had sort of circulating since the pandemic are so bound up in maritime security. And I do not understand. It's so obvious to enable us that I think this is maybe a failure of us, uh, of this tribe. It's so obvious to us that we don't, do a good enough job uh, even just saying the basics um, uh, to, to say like, Hey, you know, to, you know, that all these issues are bound up in, in a strong merchant Marine and a strong Navy and a strong Coast Guard. Um, all of it is sort of underpinned by that structure. And the grain issue in Ukraine is another one um, where just movement of goods at sea, is going to be a life or death issue for a lot of people, for millions of people across the world and the people that are most vulnerable. And we're limited, um, certainly by the Montreal Convention in the specific case, but we're also limited by uh, an enormous amount of commitments around the globe. Um, you know, we still have all the BMD missions. How many ships do we have that would be available for convoy ops, right? We're not going to send a carrier strike group out for convoy ops, they have a different mission. Um, we're not going to send LCS because we're trying to decommission them all. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a really, I don't know, is it a failure of the institutions? It's certainly a failure of, um, it's, it's a failure somewhere, and it's really hard to know how to change it. Um, you'd think that all these things would be obvious, but it's clearly not. Um, I don't know, maybe we have to teach in high school or, make it mandatory in college that people learn about the sea lanes and shipment of goods and how much we're reliant on it. But it's, it's certainly a, a cultural shortcoming. It's only getting worse. I mean, I mean, one of the things that I kind of wanted to talk about today was just the, I mean, I, I joke a lot about rust, but it's, um, it's more than that. Right. And it is getting much worse, by the way. I saw the picture of mobile Bay, which I was on five years ago and looked fantastic. Um, and it looks terrible today. But I mean, I think we're in this weird spot, right? I mean, I think at a macro level, we're spending a lot of money to keep a diminishing force 
um, deployable and relevant. But we're, you know, we've had this sort of endless debate over cruisers. Are they coming back? Are they not? Or, you know, how many are we going to keep in their lives? We're being told now that they're unsafe. I saw we've got slips on Ohio's. Um, we're slipping Los Angeles class tax boats because we can't get enough Virginias through the pipeline. And we're kind of at this point where we're spending a ton of money keeping the aging fleet we have, which really does need to start turning over to new ships. Um, we're spending a lot of the money that we could spend on preservation and things like that. Um, we're spending it just keeping these things afloat and keeping them relevant and keeping them distributed among too many tasks for too few ships. And so we're kind of at this point now where, where we've got like, a, you know, I mean, like $20,000 sedan that you've been driving for a few years and or for a number of maybe seven, eight years. And you're now starting at a point where you're at like three to $5,000 a year just to keep it running, which would be more than it would cost to buy a new car, get a new car payment and, um, and four oil changes a year. Right. And, but then you multiply that same issue over, you know, a hundred plus ships that are now coming up on their service life. Um, the DDGs, the DD flight ones, they're all coming up on 30 years. I think Arleigh Burke is at 30 years now. Um, and they were designed for 30 years. The, the cruisers are almost all there now. Um, so we're spending a lot of money keeping too few ships that are doing too many tasks going. And I think the rest is just a leading indicator of it. And it's going to get worse. Um, and so I, I don't know what you do about it. It seems like industry is maxed out, but even getting to the point where we're like, okay, we're going to have a national effort to increase the capacity of ship of our shipbuilding output, right? And we're going to fix our merchant marine forces, our ready reserve forces, and we're going to increase our output. That would sort of be predicated on a national understanding of how dependent we are on the sea and the movement of goods across sea lanes. And, for whatever reason, this is a long point, um, for whatever reason, it, it doesn't seem to be graspable um, for the vast majority. Or maybe it's just too hard and politicians don't like fixing hard problems. Over. Yeah, I think it was, uh, it may have been long in your mind, but it was an excellent point. And, you know, you have to go back to assumptions that were made 30 years ago that the consequences of those assumptions and the planning that went on with those is what we're living with today. And a lot of that was that the Chinese would be would be friendly. They would be mercantile. They would they would adapt to the uh, the conditions of open sea lanes the way we the way we in the West and a lot of other and most of the other countries in the world believe it ought to be. And and uh, they haven't they've proved not to be that way. That's that's not their style. That's not their their focus. And and I don't know if somebody. I hope somebody was back in those days screaming. What if? What if uh, we're wrong in these assumptions? But I have the feeling that with the things like the LCS and all that, that I'm not sure those voices got heard, or if they did get heard, they got ignored. Which which leads to the to the uh, the, the question of of uh, I mean, you talked a little bit about the merchant. Uh, fleet that we don't have enough of, uh, and we don't have the shipyards. I mean, we had a show God, a few months ago, I guess, on on uh, the the dearth of shipyards to build the size of ships and the kinds of ships we need for both merchant uses and and uh, for military uses. It is astonishing how we have just uh, kind of slept while this. The process has happened, except for, as you've said, a few a few navalists who've been screaming, "Our navy's not big enough. Our navy's not big enough," and our merchant men. Thank, thank goodness, John John Conrad is going nuts now because the the merchant uh, yeah. fleets, maritime people, are just being uh, uh, ignored too. We have we used to, uh, you know, we've we've given it all. We said, okay, we'll accept Chinese ships. They can carry all the goods. We don't care. They're they're going to be our friends. And you know, at some point, you've got to somebody's got to stand up and scream. No, we got to get. The only way to stop this nonsense is to is to uh, is to think American, Canadian, uh, who knows, Mexican. I mean, we've got we've got uh, our island our island neighbors need need to come in and, and pitch along with us on this stuff too, because it, all of us are dependent on the on those sea lanes. I've been reliably informed that both John Conrad and 
Sal Marcogliano are, are listening live, so I'm sure John appreciated the shout out. We we can't hit him shout shout back though. <laughs> I'm not sure I had a question there, but uh, I, I think you've really hit on something about the importance of, of shouting about it. And, and as a as a former journalist, how how do we get that message out that uh, you know people are beginning to some people are beginning to pay attention to it. But how do we get everybody else involved? It can't be high school necessarily. I mean, do we need a? Does somebody need to write a TV show about the importance of this stuff? And would that would that work? Or is there some other, you know, sort of like the NCIS for for uh, for logistics? I mean, it's a million dollar question, right? I know our friend uh, Brian McGrath has wrestled with this for years. Um, you know, how do you engage? the public and how you engage people in this idea. I mean, I mean, I joined the Navy very, for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, we talked about the academic reasons, but I mean, I would be lying if I didn't say that the hunt for October wasn't a big, uh, a big contributor to me joining the Navy. So maybe we need to resurrect, uh, have a seance and resurrect Tom Clancy and, or, well, maybe resurrect 1980s Tom Clancy and have him write some more books. Um, but in, but seriously, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to say there was an easy fix. Um, I, part of it is, again, it, 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 what frustrates me, right? I mean, what frustrates me about this is this debate is you would think that for a guy like Joe Biden, right, we have excess capacity in Philadelphia. We absolutely do. We, we could build that out. That riverfront property, some of it has been developed, but there's a lot more. There's a lot more of it that isn't developed and that is probably undevelopable because of, you know, well, not undevelopable, but it would require a lot of remediation. So I think there is capacity in Philadelphia to expand the shipyard, expand the output. Um, and you would think that for a guy like Joe Biden, um, that would be a kind of a hanging curve, right? Like you, you, a ball that you'd want to take a swing at. And I know that the Trump administration thought about, uh, thought hard about, you know, well, can we get excess capacity out of Philadelphia? And I know that there's been some ideas about maybe opening up Great Lakes. I think, you know, anywhere that we could create a constituency is a good thing. Um, and potentially engaging more on, in the political process on, on that level. You know, um, a friend of mine, uh, Eric Sayers, um, who was a former aide, and he's now in the think tank world, uh, Senate, yeah, so Senate aide um, on the Armed Services Committee, and he's now in the sort of think tank ideas world. Um, he said at one point that the Navy's problem isn't it is partly that they need to innovate politically, right? Um, the simply just simply just waiting for people to understand that um, waiting for people to understand that that the, that the sea lanes are critical and that having a balanced fleet of surface and subsurface ships is critical. Like you you cannot do convoy ops with just submarines. You can't. I mean, not in this day and age. I mean, it's got aircraft, right? So we need anti, anti-air radars. Um, you know, we need like uh, the spy radars, and we need uh, people that can shoot aircraft down and shoot missiles down. Um, and you can't do that from submarines. So you need surface ships. Um, I still see, I still see an astounding amount of ignorance about, well, why do we even have surface ships? Because well, you can't, you can't secure the sea lanes with simply submarines. And it's sort of like a basic ignorance uh, that exists about the different roles and missions of, of ships. And, and that's, not the, that's not the public's fault. So I think getting back to Eric's point is, is we need to figure out a way to innovate politically and be engaged and create constituencies because ultimately that's what's going to solve our problem. If we can solve politicians have problems, right? The problem is they want to get reelected and they want to create jobs in their district and they want to, um, you know, and, and once we actually have things up and running, it tends to be sticky because, you know, there's one thing that Congress hates, seeing a bunch of jobs go away in their district that they have to answer for election, election time. So I think engaging the political process is really the only way that we're going to create any substantial changes. So ideas like, yeah, okay, maybe maybe it's a little bit of a hassle and probably not the best solution to, to put a shipyard in the Great Lakes. There's probably all sorts of problems with it. But one problem that it is that doesn't create is, is one of the things it solves is you have another constituency now that really wants it. You got two senators and you got with a congressman and the congressman in the neighboring district and the congressman in the neighboring district next to that, all reliant on those jobs that you're creating. So 
that's part of it. I think, I think a big part of it is if we are able to just kind of engage in the political process, create constituencies and solve problems. And that solves our problems too, right? Like what, what, why would we complain about extra capacity from ship from shipyards? We know that the shipyard exists. Congress will want to give it money to build ships. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's, that's a big part of it. I want to tap into the fact I, I lived in California very briefly um, back before I even got married. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. Um, so my data points are, are, are a, little, a little dated, but I know my, that my illustrious co-host uh, knows the West Coast ports from an even earlier era. But uh, back when we were both JOs, when you looked, and this speaks to a little bit about what you said about Philly and what you said about people not really getting it, is California – Regardless, you know, you you broke, you swam against our against the the current. Everybody's leaving California. You moved to it. It's a beautiful state. Um, it's an incredibly powerful economic engine, a creative engine. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world, outside of Tuscany, Italy, uh, and uh, it's it, it can it can get some hooks into you, some very gold plated hooks. But it is what it is. But back when we were JOs, when you looked at the Navy presence in California. What today's Navy thinks of at San Diego used to exist at Long Beach, uh, Anacostia, uh, Mare Island, Moffett Field. Um, up and down the coast of California, there was a significant Navy presence, which helped with recruiting. It helped with uh, being able to work with industry. And it helped very politically important part of our country to have a constituency to um, to understand naval issues, you know, having lived out there for a little while, especially in L.A., uh, you are far enough away from San Diego, but knowing San Diego a little bit, uh, what do you think, in, in kind of big pixels, our Navy has lost by our depopulating most of California except for the southwest corner? Well, I mean, obviously the the yes, the the southwest corner is is packed with navy, um, and you can't walk anywhere in San Diego without seeing sailors and marines. It's, it's that kind of town, which is which is cool. It's very Norfolk in that way, but I can't. I, I don't think I've ever seen a sailor in in L.A. Um, I'm sure I will during Fleet Week, um, but uh, as of right now, I haven't seen any. We have the you know we have the uh, the uh, battleship Iowa in um, museum in, in Long Beach, but again, I think that's the, the last of the Navy's presence there, and it's just a museum. Um, not that that doesn't help, but it, it actually is a very popular tourist attraction. But yeah, I mean, I, I, the aerospace industry is. Um, I think this is this is the thing about LA um, is that it has it's sort of knee deep in aerospace. Um, and that industry is protected, and it is sort of sheltered and coddled by um, localities because they realize how much money it brings in. Um, and when I talk about innovating politically, I think this is kind of what the Navy needs to think more about. Um, because, yeah, I mean, L.A. has some of the smartest engineers in the world um, living here uh, because that's where the businesses are. And if we had um, more of a Navy presence in L.A. or in other places, um, around California, you would have you would have businesses that spring up, you'd have jobs created, you'd have uh, a whole economy that then Congress and the powers that be will want to preserve. So what do you lose if you leave? Um, yeah, you, you have yeah. The, 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 again, like even to the I don't know, I can't. I'm trying to think. Um, I guess I, I can't. I can't remember the last time I, I, I don't think I've ever heard Nancy Pelosi weigh in on the Navy issue because um, there's just no Navy up in San Francisco, right? Um, like I don't. I don't think I've heard any other sort of the powerful. Uh, there's a few, but certainly all the ones down from Southern California is, are the ones that end up, or from the you know the San Diego area. Those are the ones that end up on the hat. But again, I, I, I sound like a broken record here, but I think just physically being in places and creating jobs in places that's what buys you influence and that's what buys you credibility and 
that's the more the more that people realize that you're an integral part of their economy, the more I think people will be receptive to understanding what your mission is and uh, understanding how that benefits them. Yeah, I, to to uh, I didn't quite wasn't quite out in San Francisco area for the Barbary Coast stuff, but I was there when we had Hunters Point Naval Shipyard, we had Mare Island Naval Shipyard, Naval Air Station Alameda, uh, you know Pelosi and and those folks managed to get all those those places shut down and uh, not, not to not to uh, I forgot Naval Station uh, Treasure Island. Uh, yeah. All of which were vital to communicating that the Navy had a presence in the San Francisco area, and, and all that has been taken over, and much of that land has been sold to developers, like I know uh, Hunters Point and uh, some of the other ones. You know, they've they, they've taken it, and made millions of dollars on it, and uh, it is a, uh, a fiasco that. Uh, we don't have those. I mean, San Francisco is a great port. It is. It was a great Navy port, and 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 in, I mean, in addition to all the other ones, I should have mentioned uh, Naval Weapons Station Concord, which was uh, also in the in the Bay Area. So we had uh, we had the facilities, and it all got closed down, and we consolidated. And the more we consolidated, we went to either uh, Washington State, uh, Bremerton, and uh, and to San Diego, and it, and it's. Uh, I think we lost and and lovely spots like NAS Lemoore and and uh, places like that. I mean, it's because uh, we lost Miramar even in San Diego, except for the Marines for some reason they can fly out of there. But your your point is well taken. Without without that presence, it, you know, uh, a daily reminder that your Navy is working for you is is really important, and that you're that people are working for the Navy and and uh, as you said, making making a lot of money. Uh, and putting that money into the economy. So those are great points. Uh, it, we have used up your time. <laughs> Howard, we, we said we'd, we'd abuse you for, uh, David. Uh, and I'm gonna, I want to say I want to thank you very much for coming on. Any, anything, any thoughts you'd like to leave us with, anything you're working on, or uh, you want to give them your Twitter handle again so that they can, they can check out your, uh, your tweets and whatever else you're doing that uh, might be interesting to the people. Well, spare yourself my Twitter handle. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry for those that have followed it for so long that you have know, subjected to so much of my rambling. Um, but uh, but no, I, I I think in terms of closing thoughts, I think you know we should never. Was it that uh, was it Lenin that said you should never let a revolution go to waste? Um, I, I think we need to be shouting from the rooftops, continuing to. Um, and figuring out ways to break out. Um, and I know that that's kind of a, I think Naval has spent as much time as we do arguing about petty small things, even though we agree on 99% of issues. Um, we spend most of our time arguing about the 1% of issues that we have, you know, small differences in. Um, we spend an equal amount of time uh, complaining and figuring out how, how can we get other people to think like us? Well, I mean, I, never let a revolution go to waste, right? So we should be leveraging, I think, this current situation in Ukraine uh, with the imports and exports, um, continuing shipments uh, or issues with uh, the supply chain and, you know, really connecting sea power to people's lives. So I think, I think that there's a, if there's an opportunity to point out to people or to your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones, your people on social media, anywhere, everywhere, just point out how, uh, how vitally important it is that we have a, 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 a strong maritime infrastructure, both civilian and military, um, in this country because it, it, it's so important to everything that everything else that we do um, as a country and as an economy. Uh, it's really underpinned in a lot of ways by access to the sea lanes that are increasingly contested and increasingly uh, threatened. Um, and you know what? I don't know. Part of this is that um, part of the things that, things that discourage me um, is that everyone starts to understand these issues, like I said, when they're in the news, and then it goes away. But I don't think that that's necessarily all bad, so long as they understand it, when they actually see it in practice. If we keep on preaching, <laughs> preaching the gospel here. Um, when they start to see it in action, maybe that's when things will click together and that's when we make some progress. So I guess stay in the trenches, keep going, keep fighting. 
And uh, that is really all we can do. And, you know, one of my favorite phrases is right when you're sick of saying something is when people are finally listening to you. (laughs) That's so true. And, Dave, uh, again, it's been a great hour plus. It's always a pleasure uh, talking to you. Uh, We'll forgive you for for going for California to to test out something new, but you're a – uh, whether you want to, to acknowledge it or not, you're a, a, an important voice. You're an informed voice. I'm glad you're still engaged. And like I try to explain to people, um, uh, the, the people who are engaged because of the passion, and when you wrap that up with a little bit of knowledge, uh, that's who you should at least take a moment to listen to. So it's been a, been a great hour, and I hope you continue to enjoy California. And it's been raining for a couple of days where I am, so if I could send you half a day of rain, I would. And uh, look forward to the next opportunity to talk to you, David. Uh, we could use it out here. Thanks, so I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, anytime. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRet. And until next time, I hope everybody has a great Navy day. Cheers.